0: So have you ever said the wrong thing? I mean, you just, you said the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong place. Came across a three wrong thing stories this week. Amanda from New Hampshire was riding down the road with her two-year-old daughter. Suddenly her daughter from the back seat starts screaming, mommy, mommy, a me, a me, a me. Her mother had no idea what was going on and then she realized that her two-year-old daughter had not. Quite mastered pronouns because she was looking at a statue. Not a statue, me, but a statue. Jason has three little boys, and they love soldiers. They were at the mall one day. There was a man in uniform there across the way from them, and his boys were going crazy. Daddy, 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 can we please go talk to the soldier? And Jason told his boys, yes, Uh, he's a veteran of of war. You can go and, and thank him for his service. So his boys go over there. They're super excited. They run over to him. His five-year-old didn't quite get the whole picture, and he looked up at the man. He said, thank you for being a great veterinarian. (laughs) The soldier looked over at Jason and said, you know what? I love dogs, and I love kids, so it's, it's all good. Tracy was from Minnesota was talking about how her little boy, Tyler, loves playing with the nativity scene. Christmas time, They put it out, and he just loves playing. It's his favorite thing to play with. And, and one night she was asking him, she said, well, well, who are these people? And she pointed to one of the wise men that had a, a package, a box. And she said, well, who's this? And without hesitating, Tyler said, oh, that's the pizza guy. <laughs> yeah. That would have been a night that Mary and Joseph probably could have used a pizza for sure. Or as someone said, gold, frankincense, and pepperoni. Kids aren't the only ones, though, that say the wrong thing at the wrong time, right? Therese Brochard is a mental health writer and activist, and she tells the story of taking her daughter to meet her third-grade teacher at the beginning of school. She writes, My daughter Catherine is named after my grandmother and my great-grandmother, two very strong women in our family tree whom I wanted to celebrate in my girl's name. When I took Catherine to meet her third grade teacher, the teacher asked her, what would you like to be called? She responded, Katie. Taken aback, I immediately retorted, no, 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 no. You, you don't want to be called Katie. Catherine is so much more sophisticated. I went on and on why she should not be called Katie. What I didn't realize is that the teacher's name was Katie. <laughs> now, we, we've all been there, right? That, that moment where you just don't know you're saying the wrong thing, but you're saying the wrong thing? What if, though, saying the wrong thing in life actually increases anxiety in your life? What if saying the wrong thing causes you to to worry? Or what if saying the right thing would actually decrease your anxiety? It It would decrease your worry. Or even beyond that, what if there was a way for you never to say the wrong thing ever? <laughs> that like you, you could never get it wrong what you were going to say. Well, I don't know about you, wrong way or right way, I would just love to have less stress. I, I would love to have less anxiety. As, as we step into this message, you know, last Sunday we, we preached on this same topic about worry and anxiety. And I just want you to, I would love to tell you, that this was a week where I had no worry and no anxiety. It just wouldn't be true. You know, it's funny, though, all the things that I said last week I need to stop worrying about, I've done pretty good with those. But you know what I did? I created a whole other list. That's what we do, right? And so today I just want you to know as we step into this, I'm stepping into this with you. I'm asking the Lord to help his truth, help me and help you and help us see that there is a way for us to have some rescue from worry and from anxiety. The Apostle Paul is going to help us. Listen to Philippians 4, verse 6. Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. So when it comes to worry and anxiety and stress, what we're supposed to say is, is to pray. Or as someone said it, don't worry, pray instead. Now, someone might say, you know what? I, I prayed and it didn't work. Okay, let's, let's unpack that. First, let's just kind of start with what it means to pray. What does it mean to pray? There, there are a lot of definitions out there. This is just a simple one that, that I kind of like. Marshall Siegel said this, prayer is conscious personal communication with the God of the universe. So when we think about the the concept of, well, I prayed and it didn't work, maybe a helpful question is to ask, well, how is your conscious personal communication with the God of the universe? Think about any relationship you have with anybody. A relationship is only a relationship in name if there is no communication. In order for a relationship to have purpose, there has to be communication, some level, some form of communication. And if there's not communication, that relationship will just be a relationship and name it. It will not have any purpose. Communication is needed if a relationship is going to function and grow and nothing's different when it comes to God. If you're thinking, oh, hey, I prayed and it didn't work, you could be right in this sense. Not that God is not real, not that God is not loving, not that God can't answer prayers, but you don't have conscious, personal communication with God because you don't know Him. You you don't have a relationship with the one true, living God. One day, Jesus was teaching, and He told a parable. Uh, We've said this before, that a a parable is kind of like a story that's a a real-life truth Set down by a real life situation so that real life people can find out how to do life for real. And so, on this particular day, Jesus told this parable Luke chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jesus goes on. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We could summarize this parable maybe in this way. Two guys went to church, two guys prayed, but only one of them really prayed. See, one guy, he, he was engaging in religion about God. The other guy was engaging in conscious, personal relationship with God. Two completely different scenes, although it was in the same moment. Most of us know the prayer that begins, now I lay me down to sleep. There was a man, 73 years old, was boasting one day about how he had never missed a night going to bed where he didn't pray that prayer. He, he never missed a night. He always prayed, now I lay me down to sleep every night. Not long after he was boasting about that, the Holy Spirit convicted his heart and, and he realized that he was lost. He was a sinner and he needed the mercy of God. And he repented of his sin and he received Christ. And then for the rest of his life, he would tell people about how God saved him. And then he would always say this, I am the old man who said his prayers for 70 years and yet all that time never prayed at all. What about your heart before the Lord? Where is your conscious personal communication with God? Jeff Thomas has some helpful questions. Have you gone to God and confessed your sins to Him and sought His forgiveness in Jesus' name? Have you stopped making excuses for your behavior and your unbelief and asked God to show mercy? Have you asked God to give you a new heart and make you a new creation? Have you asked God that Jesus Christ might become your Savior? And then he asked a, a very interesting question. What would you think of a woman who married a man for access to his credit card and his big house and boat? You would say that she was marrying him for his money. She did not want him. She wanted what he had. She did not love him. She loved herself. And then he says this, so it is if you are praying to God for stuff you want, but not wanting God himself. If you are not a Christian, we, we pray and we deeply hope that God would quicken your heart and that by his mercy, you might ask Christ to be your savior. Because it is only through salvation in Jesus that you can have conscious, personal communication with God the one true God of the universe. And you might be thinking, look, I I wasn't praying for a credit card or a big house or a big boat. No, listen, I'm a Christian and I was was praying about serious stuff. I was praying about hard stuff with people that I love. I was praying about situations and, and circumstances that are real and they matter. And I'm full of worry and anxiety and stress because my prayers were not answered. Before he was arrested, Jesus was in a garden at the place called the Mount of Olives, and and he was praying, and this is what he prayed. Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was so overwhelmed in His stress and His anguish and His anxiety that, that some subcutaneous capillaries busted. And, and they began to mix with His sweat, and it was as if He was dripping blood, sweating out blood as He prayed. Now look, we've got some burdens, some worries and stresses, but, but none of us have ever been to the point of being so overwhelmed that, that we were sweating blood as we prayed. The sin of the world, past, present, and future, all was about to descend on the body of Jesus. Jesus was about to take on the sin of the world. John MacArthur says this, apart from the cross, no greater agony has ever been experienced by any being who's lived in this world in human form. No man has ever suffered this way. Just just lean into that for a second. This is not, you know, Magic fairy tale time. This is not, oh, the legend of Jesus. This is a real Savior, a real man who really experienced suffering that no one else has ever experienced. He goes on. This is the second greatest agony that our Lord would experience, the first being that which was to come on the cross itself. This is the night when he anticipates the drinking of the cup of divine wrath, which will be his in full. At the cross. He goes on. It is the anticipation of experiencing the Father's will and embracing the role of becoming a sacrifice for sin to become the sin bearer. He is facing something completely alien to himself. He has never known sin. He has never known the wrath of God. He has never known alienation. Jesus was troubled with sorrow that was so deep The Bible says it was as if he was going to die from his anguish. His sorrow was so great, it was almost to the point of death. In fact, the Bible says he was so overwhelmed mentally and physically and spiritually that an angel from heaven had to come and and build him up and and help him out. You ever felt that way before? Ever felt completely mentally and spiritually and physically exhausted from your worry and your anxiety? And what was Jesus doing in the middle of all of his anguish? What what was he doing as as sorrow was pounding his heart and his mind? He was pouring out his heart to the Father. He's praying. This is what Jesus was doing in the middle of his anguish. He was praying. And was his prayer answered? Well, yes and no. (laughs) No. See, here's what happened. In in the middle of his prayer, Jesus stopped being in anguish, and and his prayer shifted. His his prayer changed. Why? Because he prayed that the cup would pass, but the cup was always the plan. From before the foundations of the world, the, the cup was always the plan. The cup could not pass. MacArthur goes on. If he doesn't go to the cross, then we have some big problems. Satan wins, heaven is empty, hell is full, the Bible isn't true, the promises of God are lies, and there is no salvation. Big problem. But Jesus did go to the cross. In his moment of anguish, one word changed the entire conversation. To use the language we're using in this text, he stopped worrying and he started praying so to speak and and one word changed everything and what was that one word listen to it again yet not my will but yours be done yet the King James has, has a great translation of this listen to it nevertheless not my will but thine be done If we are going to profess to be Christians, our nevertheless has to be on the table. It has to. Our nevertheless has to be on the table where we are following Jesus and we are saying, thy will be done. Now, will that nevertheless make everything fluffy and comfortable? No. In our anxious moments, our nevertheless will not make everything easier, will not make everything nicer, will not make everything safer. Our nevertheless will will not mean that we won't be aggravated or angry. Our nevertheless does not mean that we won't be afraid, that we won't be hurt, that we won't be numb, that we won't be devastated. The nevertheless will not take away all that has happened in our life, but the nevertheless is your greatest That nevertheless is your greatest help. Why? Because if you can keep your nevertheless on the table and you can can keep looking at it and you can keep reminding yourself of that nevertheless, nevertheless, Father, your will be done. If you can hang on to that, here's what will happen. Your nevertheless will remind you of the nevertheless of Jesus. And you'll remember that that in the moment that his anguish was so much that he was sweating blood, that he stopped worrying, so to speak, and he started praying, and that the cup did not pass, and that the cross did not pass, and that Jesus, in the power of his nevertheless, changed everything. And seeing Jesus step into his agony, step into his anguish with his nevertheless, it helps us to step into our agony and our anguish and our worry and our stress with confidence that Jesus is for us, that Jesus has solved our biggest problem. What does that mean? It means that in our anguish and our anxiety and our worry, we take our nevertheless and we step into it and we remind ourselves that Satan did not win. We remind ourselves that heaven is not empty. We remind ourselves that the Bible is true, that the promises of God are not a lie and that the salvation of Jesus Christ is real. But that's what the the nevertheless does. All of those things are yours in Christ at any given moment. All of that hope, all of that peace, all of that confidence can be yours through, through something unbelievably simple. Prayer. Conscious, personal communication with the one true God. I prayed and it didn't work. We all have that moment. We, we all have that moment. Some of you can remember that moment where you said, God, you didn't do it. I, I mean, I can remember mine like that. God, you, you didn't do it. What, what's, going with, what's going on with this, Lord? I, I, I prayed and, and nothing happened. But if we put our nevertheless on the table. And we keep it there. And we we hang on to it. We, We do whatever we have to, to stay connected to it. The reality is no matter what we're worried or anxious about, no matter what the situation might be, we can keep preaching to our hearts that the cup was not passed and the cross was not passed. And our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. We bear our sin no more. And even in the middle of our anguish, we can still say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Now let me be clear, I'm, I'm not floating some pie-in-the-sky magic jelly bean thing about praying and prayer. Prayer is, is hard. And you're going to need more than some now lay me downs. You, you, have to, you have to step into it. But here's the thing, the good news of the gospel as you step into it with your nevertheless, the good news of the gospel, it'll guard you, it'll keep you, it will help you to see that it can be well with your soul. Not happy, happy, joy, joy. But well. Well with your soul. The message Paul is giving us through the the power of the gospel is fairly simple. It's just Stop worrying and and start praying instead. I mean, that that sounds easy, right? But, But it isn't. Elizabeth Elliot said this, to pray thy will be done, I must be willing if the answer requires it that my will be undone. As you follow Jesus, as you pray, please know that from time to time, your will, it will be undone. It'll happen. But here's what can't be undone. You can't be undone from God. You can't be undone from the will of God. You can't be undone from the love of God. You can't be undone from the peace of God that passes all understanding. You can't be undone from His will, even if your will gets undone. Over the last four weeks and personal conversations and phone conversations and text messages and emails from South Carolina to Georgia to West Virginia. I've I've been in conversations with people whose wills got undone. And and almost every single one of those folks, they have encouraged and and challenged me and, and quite frankly, sometimes just shamed me. Because in the middle of them being undone, it was very clear that their nevertheless had already been on the table. Their faith didn't shift. Their fear and anxiety and worry did not win. Their hurt has been real, but their prayers have been real. Why? Why? Because through that nevertheless, they have known without a shadow of a doubt that the cup did not pass, that the cross did not pass, and that every single promise they have in Jesus Christ is real. It's all true. Not because somebody has a great praise song or a great hymn or a great sermon. Because Jesus Christ actually was born in Bethlehem. And he really was raised to die on a cross. And he was raised from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of the Father now. These things are true. And the evidence is clear. When we say picture nevertheless on the table, we're, we're not talking about blind faith. We're talking about confident faith in the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to (laughs) worry. We're going to. (laughs) I knew Harold would amen that. That's right. Yeah, we're going to worry. But the promise of the gospel is we don't have to keep worrying. We can follow the example of Jesus even in the middle of a prayer and stop worrying and start praying. Start looking again to the majesty and the power of Jesus. Maybe like you're like me, though, and sometimes you're, you're too busy. You think, oh, I don't, I don't have time to pray, or I don't even know what to pray. Let me just encourage you with these simple words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus was teaching, and he said, when you pray. There's, there's no if there it's as if Jesus was saying the most natural thing for anybody who's going to follow after me to do would be to talk to the one who fearfully and wonderfully made them. To talk to the one who fearfully and wonderfully saved them and and fearfully and wonderfully loves them. The most natural thing for a Christian to do would be to pray. So let us abandon all of our excuses Let us turn the radio off in the car and and keep our eyes open while we're driving and and pray. Let us wake up 15 minutes earlier every day and and go to that chair in the den and close our eyes and pray. Whatever it is that we have to do, whatever change we need to make, let us be a people who pray. pray. Let us pray, let us pray, let us pray because Jesus commanded us to pray because he wants us in conscious, personal Communication with the God of the universe. Marshall Siegel says this, God means for your life, married or unmarried, student or employee, young or old, to run on the power of prayer. Prayer fuels the engine of your heart and mind. It's not coffee or Chipotle or social media buzz. It's prayer. You need God in and through prayer more than you need anything else. We will not do anything of real and lasting value without God, which means we will not do anything of any real and lasting value without prayer. And then he kind of is like the rest of us. He he knows where we are. He says this, and yet you probably feel as insecure about your prayer life as you feel about anything. We know we need to pray. But we know we don't pray enough. And we're not always sure we're even doing it right when we do pray. Should I, should I even be asking God for this? Should I still be asking God for this? Do I even know what I need? So what do we do when questions like that pop up? Well, Paul's going to add a word here that I think might help us. Look what he says next. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. What is supplication? The idea here is that it carries the sense of humility and helplessness and dependence on God. It means that our, our prayers hit a different gear. We're, we're not just kind of walking around the house and, and talking to God or driving down the road and, and talking to God. There's, there's this thing that we step in a little more. And we begin to pray in such a way about something happening in our lives or or something happening in the lives of somebody that we love or something happening in the outside world. And we pray in such a way that we understand only God can do this. I I can't do this. Only God can do this. It's praying in such a way that we're brought low. We're brought low and we begin to catch a, a vision of how God is God and there is no other and we are not and we need him. That's what happened to Isaiah when God allowed him to catch just a glimpse of his majesty and his glory. And after catching that glimpse, I love Isaiah's response. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he was confronted with the holy presence of God, Isaiah got low. There was something that happened. me. He, he knew that he was in the presence of something, someone different. His heart and his mind, they were in awe. They were amazed. There was this beautiful sense of fear, and it felt great. But it brought him love. Because he was able to see in that moment there was something, that from his eyes and his ears communicated to his mind that rushed to his heart, you know what? God is there, and you are here. He is holy, 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 and you are not. He is other, 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 and you are not. And that's good. That's good. Because only when we see the holiness of God can our hearts really find hope For our anxiety and our worry and our anguish and our sorrow and our stress. Supplication is the kind of praying that that helps us catch a glimpse of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God. And when we do that, when we see God for who he is, when we consider what God has done to ransom us, to rescue us, when we consider that, when we see who God is, you know what happens? It's not that hard to stop worrying and start praying. See, the the vision of who God is and what God has accomplished for us, it moves us to put our nevertheless on the table because we realize that we've been rescued, that we've been saved. So, what do you need to stop worrying about? What's, what's one thing that you're worrying about that, that you need to stop? I mean, all of us have at least one, right? And it doesn't do any good for us just to come in here and, and do this every Sunday and not, and not engage with it. So what's, what's the one thing that even in the middle of praying about the one thing, you need to stop worrying about it and, and, and start praying about it? What is that one thing in light of the fact that the cup did not pass and the cross did not pass that you really could, because of the power of the gospel, work hard at stop worrying about this week? Amy Joseph is a wife and a mom. She's got three little boys, and she says this. Christians will face suffering in its broad spectrum, from daily inconveniences and exhaustion to unbearable diagnoses and unimaginable tragedy. Sighs, both trivial and tragic, are expected and anticipated. However, they are heard in stereo by a compassionate and caring Savior who longs to bear the brunt of the weights that fall upon us in this long march toward our forever home. And then she quotes J.C. Raw. I love this quote. Fear not, because your prayer is stammering, your words feeble, and your language poor, Jesus can understand you. Jesus can understand you. She goes on. The unseen and unheard sighs of a tired mother in her laundry room are caught and translated by the Spirit of God. The sighs of refugees forced out of their cultures and nations by violence resound loudly in the ears of our Heavenly Father. The sighs of breadwinners weighed down by the burden of providing for their families. The exhausted sighs of single parents and the labored sighs of the sick and dying are noticed by our God. She goes on. He hears our silent sighs under the heavy mantle of leadership or parenting. He hears our short sighs of loneliness or exhaustion or choking grief that go unnoticed by others. The Spirit is translating those sighs into prayers according to the perfect will of God. And I love this. May we be comforted to know that our Father hears our slightest sighs as loud cries. And then she says this. He will continue to do so until our sighs of worry or pain or exile are swallowed up by our sighs of relief when we see our Christ face to face. Why should you pray? Because the cup was not passed. Because the cross was not passed. And so therefore, we can work hard to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, to turn our hearts toward Jesus. Why? Because Jesus will understand you. Jesus will understand you.